0: Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302. And you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge better understanding and a clear
1: direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor, please like, share and follow Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. Each episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests to join us. In this episode, we have Star Saxstein with a focus on assessing with respect, specifically grading practices that meet students' social and emotional needs. Star Saxstein was a teacher center teacher and ELA teacher at Long Island City High School in New York. She also spent nine years at World Journalism Preparatory School in Flushing, New York, as a high school English and journalism teacher, where her students ran the multimedia news outlet WJPSnews.com. As a teacher, she completely got rid of grades, teaching students that learning isn't about numbers, but about the development of skills and the ability to articulate growth. Starr also has experience as the Director of Humanities, Business, English, Library, Reading, Social Studies, and World Languages in West Hempstead, New York. In this, it, it was from this experience that she wrote From Teacher to Leader, Finding Your Way as a First-Time Leader Without Losing Your Mind. She's the author of many books. I can't go through the entire list, but we'll pick a few to point out. Blogging for Educators, The Power of Questions, Hacking Homework, Hacking Assessment, Peer Feedback in the Classroom. And now today we're going to be talking about one of her new books, Assessing with Respect. And she even has another book coming out in 2021 called Hacking Learning Centers in grades six through 12 at speaking engagements around the world star speaks about blogging journalism, education, bringing your own device to school and throwing out grades, which was also highlighted in a recent TEDx talk entitled a recovering perfectionist journey to giving up grades in 2016. She was named one of ASCD's emerging leaders. In recent years, Star has spoken internationally in Canada, Dubai, and South Korea on a variety of topics from assessment reform to technology enhanced language instruction. She is now the full-time consultant with the core collaborative working with teams on assessment reform and bringing student voice to the front of the classroom for learning. She's also the publisher with Mimi and Todd Press, helping other authors share their voices around making an impact for students. With books such as Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity, The Keys to Successful Equity Implementation by Cobb and Cronapple, and most recently, Arrows, A System-Based Approach to School Leadership by Rosebrock and Henry. Okay, Star, we appreciate you joining us on our, this episode of Focus Ed. We're going to jump right in. You wrote uh, this new book, Assessing with Respect. Let's start with the book and then get into some of your experiences. Tell us why you wrote the book and what you want educators to take from your message.
2: So when I first started writing about assessment, I think a lot of the social emotional stuff was in there, but wasn't explicitly kind of called out. Like The intention was always to bring student voice to the front to provide feedback instead of labels. But over the last year, obviously, with everything that was going on, it felt a little tone deaf to not sort of very explicitly bring out that intersection between social emotional learning and our assessment practices, as well as the equity piece, which wasn't necessarily a a part of my proposal, but ended up being very much involved in what I ended up writing about. And so that the equity piece is really big in there as well. And when I think about what most traditional assessment practices look like, I try to be super practical in my books. I don't know if anyone has read any of them, but writing as a teacher for teachers, I know that teachers need what can I do in my space right away? How can I use this information and what can I try out? So the book is very, very practical, very thoughtful in terms of things we can do easily as well as practices to implement over time. And it also gives a lot of resources in areas that I may not, like, I would not consider myself an equity expert in terms of a lot of things, but I do touch on a lot of topics that are associated with assessment and give really good references to people you should be reading around those specific areas. So that's kind of, it's the evolution of all of the assessment work I've been working on for like the last 12 years.
0: Start one thing we love to start to touch on for our audience, uh, which is a mix of those instructional leaders, administrators, some teachers. If we're gonna enter this space and and get into assessment, and most of us come with a, a deep understanding of assessment, whatever that may be though, right? Because there's its influence in so many different ways. What's the way that you suggest we enter this space of assessment to kind of undo some of our, you know, our ideas that we have from the past, our things we've learned, and, and even what we're facing now? How would we start entering this conversation in our in our uh, schools and districts?
2: I think the same way we do with kids, we have to meet people where they are and really acknowledge practices that are successful and and kind of go from that success model instead of a deficit model. Traditional practices really seek to point out the things that are wrong. And if we flip the message where we're looking for strengths in the work that kids are already doing and building on those strengths and giving them more opportunities to to articulate their learning through reflection and self-assessment and peer assessment and get them involved even in curriculum design, because the power is in the curriculum. So the more opportunities we give kids to have choice about what and how they learn, I think that is the perfect combination for where where we should start, bringing all the the stakeholders to the table when we make these decisions. So they shouldn't be made in isolation the way that maybe we've traditionally done it, where I write a curriculum map, I decide what that assessment's going to look like, and then the lack of equity across even a grade level based on what teachers are teaching really puts students at a, dif- a disadvantage if that level playing field isn't really happening and kids aren't getting the same learning experience in, in different classrooms, especially at the secondary level.
1: Meeting people where they are. That so that's a great strategy with the teachers. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the understanding the impact of grades on student self-image in terms of meeting them where they are as well with with grades and the ability to reach them and teach them to their So full like potential. when we think
2: about kids in their in their earliest years as learners, kinder to two before testing is in play and hopefully before any grades are really being used, kids love learning. They're curious, they ask a lot of questions. And then from grades three to 12, we systematically beat the love of learning out of them. And I know that that probably sounds a little aggressive, but there's so much testing and there's so much labeling that we as educators have the power to really influence the way kids see themselves as learners. Think about how many times you've heard a kid say, I'm not a math person, I can't write, I'm not a reader. I don't, you know, I don't learn language as well. Science really isn't my thing. Those are all internalized messages that they've gotten from the classroom over time. I'm not saying any one teacher did it on purpose. This isn't a finger pointing blame experience, but, the words we use in our classrooms really do have an impact and we have to be really cognizant of the language that we use when we're telling kids about their learning and we're teaching them to articulate what they know and can do and how to advocate for themselves as learners and even our earliest learners can advocate for themselves if they understand what success criteria is and that could be a checklist for a kindergarten person or little pictures where they're drawing emojis and making faces to show whether or not they feel good about something or they don't. Or in high school, having them write really good standards aligned reflections that show what they know and then also articulate the goals that they're setting for themselves. So in the context of the way that we traditionally grade a lot of it is really subjective. It's you know it's a little embarrassing to admit out loud, but how many of us have sat with a pile of papers and even the consistency in which we get through a stack of papers is wildly different from beginning to end, depending on whether or not you're taking breaks. Now, it's not a popular thing to admit, but it's a very honest thing to admit. We're human beings and In doing so too, sometimes even the way we feel about kids influences the way we read their work. And that's also not a cool thing, but it's a legitimate thing. So you know, thinking about ways that we could equitably approach their work, maybe not having their names on the papers when we look at them, maybe not sorting them alphabetically or what we think we're gonna see before we even get in there with those preconceived notions of who they are as learners. And just let the work speak for itself So that when we're actually approaching that work, we could give really honest feedback and have that feedback be aligned with goals that students have set, which is why reflection should should be a part of this process. You read their reflection first, you see what they were working on, you approach their work afterwards, and then the feedback you give them is directly related to what you learned from their reflection. And then they could track their progress a lot better. And you have differentiation built right in there too, because you're working off where they started you instead of that you know singular lens where I'm looking for these points on a rubric and I'm gonna look at every kid exactly the same way, give the exact same feedback if the same things are not correct or correct. And the nuance that comes through in that feedback I think is really what could change students' relationship with the way they see themselves as learners.
0: Star, just from a very practical standpoint, would you suggest that we have to build that more in the undergrad level? And I ask that because when we talk about grades and we talk about assessment, those are two things that aren't really taught at the undergrad level. Very often, most Uh, Teachers don't get an assessment course and it's definitely changed over the last decade, but it's still not robust where we get into grading. Um, away or at least apart from the compliance side of grading, even if we put it under the umbrella of like a diagnosis and what we're trying to work with kids. But really, I see a lack of that in some of the teacher prep programs from the grading side and the assessment side. So even talking about how do we start developing good sound assessments, whether they're formative or summative, You know, so do you see us starting and having conversations with higher ed? And then where would you see us in regards to our own folks and our own systems? Because it's not about just changing, you know, a grading practice. Like you said, this is really how we approach things in America on many levels, like there is good, bad, right, wrong. Like we are very bicameral in our thought process. So if you could, I know it's a lot I'm asking you here, but could you walk it back a little bit to the higher ed side and maybe some work we need to do early on with our our teachers and then in our current systems, what would we do to start those conversations and changing really a, a culture?
2: So I've had the honor to to speak with a lot of pre-service teachers. When I was writing that book that we were joking about before teaching Mythology Exposed, I actually developed relationships with teachers who were teacher ed practitioners. And from those relationships, I have routinely over the years had the opportunity to speak to those pre-service teachers and kind of just get them thinking about stuff. And I've been saying the same thing for a long time in terms of teacher prep. I didn't really learn anything about assessment in my, in my graduate program. And I, I wasn't studying to be a teacher in my undergraduate program. I was actually a literature and writing major at that time. So it wasn't until my master's that I started really doing the education work and assessment wasn't in there and it, and it should have been. Because I think the first five years of my teaching career were kind of abysmal on that front, very traditional, very black and white, as you suggested, because that's the way I was assessed. So I took what was done to me and then did it to my students until, you know, the icky feeling I was having about how that really wasn't working for the vast majority of the inner city kids I was teaching at the time. Like it was it was shameful. I look back on it now, and I'm kind of ashamed of of those first five years, and I just didn't know any better, and it took me a while to know better and try different things, and in terms of our system, as leaders, it is our responsibility to, first of all, put structures in place where teachers understand the, the choices that they make, the language that they use, and then, you know, within our school structures, making sure we have a shared assessment language, making sure that we're putting different policies in place that honor the dignity of all the kids in our spaces, and allow as many stakeholders as possible to be a part of those conversations, and then enforce it, like, really hold people accountable to those kinds of things because i know in the secondary area where i have spent my entire career high school teachers will say yes to just about everything in front of a crowd and then when you get behind closed doors you figure out which things you can get away with and you get away with them especially if you're in a large system where no one overburdened administrator, whether higher up or your department chair, has time to start looking at your online gradebook to make sure it's aligned with whatever the policy was, checking how often you're putting stuff in. And now I'm saying this as from when I was in that leadership role, it takes a lot of work to go check the back end of every single one of your teachers to make sure that you've locked the gradebook on the back end where they can't change numbers. Like, if they're doing what we ask them to do, are the buckets set up correctly? You know, is feedback being provided on a regular basis? That's, it's a lot of work to make sure that those things are actually occurring. And and we don't want to wait until parents call to complain to find out they aren't working or they, they aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, I mean, I would say we need to start small with things we know we could hold folks accountable for, put structures in place that we know are gonna stand the test of time, whether we're there or not, and, and flexible enough to evolve with the group of kids that we have in our spaces all the time. And you know, teachers should definitely have a working knowledge. I, I've met teachers who don't even know the difference between summative and formative. Um, they might not admit it readily in a group, but you could tell by the way they talk about it that those two terms are confounding to them.
1: So let's couple two those two things together: the absence of knowledge around grading practices, maybe somebody who hasn't read up on the current research and the self-efficacy stuff that 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 you've been talking about here, and then leadership. You said start small, but are there other leadership tactics? that you would use if you were a prince. I mean, we have principals and assistant principals on this call. And so, you know, I know folks are doing grade book audits and a number of other things, but are there proven strategies that you would say need to be need to be happening to hold folks accountable to these newly established policies?
2: I mean, I think it it all comes down to where you're starting with your group. Do you have veteran teachers? Do you have new teachers? What are their actual What's I, I want to back up for a second. What's interesting about grades is we all bring baggage with our experience about grades, and with that baggage comes a great deal of additional stuff, emotional weight we have to work through. Before we st- or, or we end up doing what I said in the beginning, doing what was done to us, to others. It, it's like that abuse cycle, unfortunately. When you don't know any better, you do what you know. And I think we have to divorce the emotional piece of it. Grades shouldn't be used as weapons. There shouldn't be compliance measures where we're beating kids into submission with deadlines and taking points off for. I mean, I know on my son in one of my son's classes, if he turns in an assignment like four days late, he's already lost 20 points. And then what you end up having here, even if he turns in a masterful piece of work, he's still already starting with a, a much lower grade, regardless of the quality of work that he submits and regardless of what he knows and can do. So we really need to start separating the behaviors and the academic achievement. We need to be super clear and agree on what achievement is what it looks like in each content area there needs to be consensus consensus that is developed among the group so that exemplars could be created for content areas and for grade levels all of that should be transparently shared with your families and your students so that this isn't a secret that only the teacher it has because how, how many of us on this Zoom right now has been in a class and only found out what teachers were expecting when we got the paper back. You know, you get all this feedback, you learn a lot about what that teacher valued. I didn't know I had a comma splice problem until I was in my second year of college. Nobody ever mentioned that grammatical issue with me and I certainly wouldn't have thought that my inability to use commas correctly really damaged my ability to communicate so badly that I would be losing so much points to you know, it it degrades the the meaning of what we're trying to achieve when we start hyper-focusing on these really unimportant things. So I would say as a group, as a team, get clear on what's important and and make sure that what you value is evident in the way that you assess. And if what you value is the dignity of your children, you won't be labeling them with grades because that's not dignified.
0: Star, that definitely brings up some controversial aspects of grading, and so if you wouldn't mind, can we go down this rabbit hole a little bit? Because are you suggesting? Because immediately on any conversation, we start getting hung up on late work, and you know things like the zero and so on. But just so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how would we approach that? where we still recognize the child didn't submit something on time, which in the world of work is critical and deadlines are critical. And being in a vocational world, you know, we we teach employability skills all the time. Now, I'll also say we don't have a separate report card for employability skills. It's something we have discussed. And so can you talk about that a little bit, like how we would begin to separate the mastery of the learning, which you described and your, what your son turned in, but still at some point recognize that, you know, it, we just didn't do it within that time frame. So it doesn't necessarily affect the grade, but it's still documented because that's something that as a school, we should still focus on for that child, or we still be doing them a disservice. We just couple everything and it becomes a, a massive entangled nightmare. Can you unpack that for us a little bit?
2: So I have a couple of things with what you just said that kind of strike me right away. First of all, as adults, yeah, we have deadlines, but I know that when I was in leadership, I had a lot of teachers who routinely didn't meet deadlines and they were the worst with students who didn't. So like the irony and also the incongruency with expectations, is absurd in education, and not just in our field. I think that so, with maybe the exception of journalism, where there is legit deadlines because things have to go to print. Like most stuff is pretty flexible, and to you know ab- abuse kids about that. I-, I think what we have to do, especially with youngsters, you know, in in K twelve, if we're talking. Usually when stuff is late, there's a reason. And I think instead of focusing on the outcome, which is what we do a lot, we need to start getting to root causes. If you have kids who are turning in work routinely late, there's really a problem. If you have kids who aren't turning work in at all, there's usually also a reason. So instead of always, again, labeling kids, making them feel like whatever's going on for them isn't important, and this pandemic would be a great, you know, A great example of that. like There's so much going on in these lives of these children at this point that instead of penalizing them for for them not following our rules, our largely arbitrary ones for that matter, we need to make sure that we really understand what is really going on. Building those relationships with our kiddos, making sure we know what's going on at home, making sure that they are in good spaces and then working with them to come up with something that might suit their learning better i had and i I use this example a lot i had a student who was the child of two deaf parents and i didn't know that his parents were deaf but his attitude towards school was very different than the attitudes of most of the students in my class I heard for years before Peter ended up in my class that he's a kid who doesn't work to his potential. All of these messages, like he's a good kid, but, and, and there was, you know, fill in the but afterwards. And what I noticed about Peter right away is Peter always carried a book. It might not have been the book we were learning in class, but that kid was a reader and he loved to read, right? And not only was Peter a reader, but he was a thinker. The kind of stuff he was reading was so much, like it was beyond what most high school kids would have chosen to read. So one day when we were in class and, you know, he would participate in conversations that we were having in class, even though he didn't necessarily produce work, he was clearly doing the reading. He was clearly listening to what was going on. You know, I took him aside after class and I was like, Peter, what's, you know, what's up? How come stuff's not getting done? Talk to me a little bit. And he told me about his situation at home and how his parents didn't want him to go to college because he was the only link they had to the hearing world. And so different things were more important to him. And from that point on, after we had an understanding, Peter started coming to lunch to do the work that he had to do. I told him that when we were doing writing assignments, he could do it based on the books he was choosing. He did not have to use the books we were using in class. and. The quality of his work, it was there. He just needed an opportunity to dive into stuff that he was really interested in. And he was hypercritical of his own work. Once I gave him the platform to be able to share it the way that he wanted to share it. So, I mean, the, the moral of that story is, is we don't really know what's going on until we ask. And then when a kid sees that we're willing to make adjustments based on what we learn, and then support them through those adjustments. They're far more willing to do what needs to be done because they understand that, you know, I show my learning through this, this, and this. Maybe they don't need to do six assignments. Maybe they only need to do three, especially if they're already mastering the work that's being done. So there needs to be a flexibility with with what our expectations are. Sometimes things should just be practice for kids who need practice. And that shouldn't really factor into the way that we assess them overall in terms of what goes on the report card at the end of the day.
1: It's a great story. It, it demonstrates a number of things. But what comes to mind for me is the idea of personalized learning doesn't have to come from the lesson plan. Mm-hmm. It can come from the kid. And we've heard this a number of times, Star, from, from a number of our guests is just ask the kid it just it seems so simple but you know we're we're apt to take the points off for the late work without even asking why it came in late and so taking that little extra step builds the relationship gives you a window into their disposition personalizes the learning and probably connects the kid to school in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise been connected so it's a great story. It's also a place to pivot. If you don't mind, we have, want to ask a couple questions sure. to you um, off maybe the topic of grading, just because our audience loves to get nuggets of wisdom and then also some resources and things like that. Is there anyone outside of education who you read or follow for advice who you would say folks on this call, listeners should go to for, for leadership lessons or, or any other topic?
2: First person that comes to mind is Brene Brown. I love her. A lot of her shame stuff has, like, I mean, it speaks to me personally because she writes about perfectionism and she also writes about leadership and just the the dispositional stuff that goes with it. And for me, her research has really resonated and helped me as a leader when I was in that position. And I think as a teacher too, when you think about, we're 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 so critical of ourselves, and I think that that comes through as well. So. Everything I've ever read by her has been absolutely worthwhile.
1: I think she, uh, Joe, I think Brene Brown pays our guests to say that. I'm just convinced of it at this point. (laughs) She comes up almost every time we interview somebody.
2: She's good.
0: Yeah, she's excellent. And there's a lot of, I think when people listen to her is almost just finally relieved somebody said it. And I think that's male and female alike. Um, She crosses everyone when she she speaks, you know, with identity. And I've even had my own kids. I have not watched her Netflix special yet, but I did just reply she has the Netflix out there as well. So um, she, she, we're trying to get her on the show. I just, I just even need her to recognize there is a show first and then we'll get her on. But uh, yeah, I don't think to TJ's point, I don't think there's anyone been mentioned as much as Brene Brown by our guests period. So, and I think it also speaks to our work as educators and the altruism we do want to bring to To our lives and and why we why we go into this profession, and to that end, uh, Starf, there's is there you could change the experience for students in school. If there's one thing you would do. What would that look like for those students? What would you want to see done for those students?
2: Oh man, I I think there are so many. Systemic changes that have to happen in education right now. And although the pandemic has been so challenging, we have an incredible opportunity at our fingertips to change the way we do things. Even just the arbitrary 43 minutes in a period to learn something with like eight classes in a day, the whole structure of that, you know, industrial era going through a school day is is not a dignified way to learn. There should be less, kids should have more choice. So, I mean, I guess graduation requirements need to be adjusted. Obviously, the whole grading system is something that I would upend and just do a straight up feedback-based system without any grades whatsoever and really have a, an in-depth ability to co-construct even curriculum choices with the kids and how it impacts them so that it is personalized. Every kid deserves to have a personalized learning experience. And I think we'd have much more successful kids in the way society is now. Seeing as really, you see how many kids end up being entrepreneurs without even going to college at this point where they start developing apps and they understand technology and all these different things. I, I think that the education should fit the kids and it shouldn't be the other way around that, you know, that they should be fitting to us. I think it's just off.
1: Yeah. It's that custody and control model. And then, and so you, you talk about personalized learning. We've talked about feedback. We've talked about going gradeless, a number of things and lots of the stuff that you've written in your books. Wondering, is there a book that you wish somebody would write for educators on a topic that you think we all need to be reading about that we might not be or that you're interested in and there just isn't enough literature out there about it?
2: I think it's starting to be a thing now, but mental health and educators, like they're talking a lot more now about mindfulness and stuff like that, but I'm talking about like legit mental health stuff that's researched and The same way we give space to kids for this personalized learning, we treat teachers with the same dignity. This is a hard job. Everyone goes into it because they want to have an impact. They care about kids. It's really easy to beat yourself up on a regular basis and burn out really fast. And we lose a lot of people really early on. So I think some of those structural changes with the system, to go back to the last question, I think could really help teachers also, if you know, more stuff included their voices and not just through the unions. I mean, like there's a real organic sort of relationship that administrators and leaders and, and teachers have together so that that partnership is what comes through.
1: Well, Star, this has been great. We appreciate your time. And uh, a lot of awesome stuff that people can take away from this conversation and start leading the grading work, leading in a direction that provides students with, with the respect that they deserve in schools and, and the feedback that they need to grow as young people. Is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners and our guests in the, in the live audience?
2: I guess just if you do to start going down this road, go easy on yourself. It takes a while to get to get it right, even when you have all the right reasons for doing things. And then even once you have structures in place based on the kids you have in your spaces, it's gonna change a lot. So just understand that there's, you know, things have to happen and, and ebb and flow with them and understand that flexibility is gonna be essential to it becoming successful.
1: That's great advice, go the course Make the change, but go easy on yourself as you you get there. Thank you, Star. This has been fantastic. You heard it here on Focus Ed. Star Saxton, everyone, a virtual round of applause from our live audience, please. Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep.
0: I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about, you know, getting a good night's sleep. But you know, do tell. How do we go about getting better sleep?
1: Well, I think that's part of your problem. Is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghost Bed, our sponsor, with thirty thousand plus five star reviews. Their patented sleeping cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed.
0: That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you.
1: And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout you go to ghostbed.com, you get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout.
0: Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest.
1: Wow, that's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral if you get somebody else a good night's sleep. Better sleep for you, better leadership. Ghostbed.com, you can't beat it. Ghostbed.com.